Imagine a peaceful mountain town. Green grass all spread throughout, scattered with daffodils in the spring. There's majestic peaks rising up on three sides, and the fourth side has a peaceful brook flowing down out of the valley. There's wash hung out on a line and a few milk goats tethered outside of a house here or there. Perfectly peaceful and beautiful setting with just one problem. One of the mountains is rumbling. A puff of ash goes into the sky periodically. The mountain is getting ready to blow. Imagine a division of National Guardsmen are sent to evacuate the villagers from this village, sent to warn them of the danger and to bring them out peacefully, calmly, orderly, and safely. But when the guardsmen get there, the mission doesn't turn out to be quite as easy as they had expected. It's raining. It's cold. So they set up a shelter to keep themselves uh, safe and dry and warm. Although some of the residents heed the warning and begin to pack up and even are encouraging their neighbors to do the same, many are hostile to the message of danger. Some of them make fun of the guardsmen. Some of them throw rocks at the guardsmen, and so in a concern for their own safety against the growing tide of antagonism, they fortify their shelter, put up barricades, checkpoints, security places, and after weeks of working, only a few have been evacuated from the town. There's a rumbling in the night, and knowing that the mountain is about to blow the guardsmen gather up and head out in the dead of night, escaping merrily with their lives. When they get back to their headquarters, the master sergeant, Sergeant Major, asks her a report of the evacuation work. And the first sergeant, who had been in charge of this mission, explains that when they got there, they set up a camp and orderly to keep the, uh, the troops safe and comfortable. He explains the resistance and even the hostility that they faced and the way that where they responded to that. And he explains about the mountain beginning to uh, erupt and uh, was proud to say that all of the guardsmen escaped. Not one was lost. And the sergeant major looks at him in silence for a few minutes. He says, what of the mission? What of the villagers? The sergeant looks down, whispers, they perished. I began this story with the word imagine because I can't imagine a time that something like this would happen, that the men and women of the National Guard would be so wrapped up in their own security and comfort that they would abandon their mission. What about the church? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that we would listen to you, be faithful to your call. I pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom as we study these things. I pray that we would receive them with joy and serve you wholeheartedly. I thank you, God, for your presence with us. We worship you because of who you are. Amen.
We're reading from Acts chapter 17 this morning, so please turn in your Bibles there. We'll read the first nine verses of Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It seems like a fairly straightforward passage. It's short, it's sweet, it's a narrative account of the beginning of the ministry in Thessalonica, but I do want to draw a couple of things that might uh, miss us as we read through this. Um, first is uh, the city of Thessalonica was a large and important city. The population was about 200,000 at the time that Paul was there. Uh, I think that map is actually from last week, but if, uh, oh, there's Thessalonica. All right, great. Um, awesome. So large city, especially for us living here in the sticks, 200,000 seems like a lot of people. Um, and it was the provisional capital of this uh, area of um, Macedonia. So uh, a pretty important city that Paul and Silas have come to. And that's important as well when it says, now when they had passed through, da 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 they is referring to Paul and Silas, and then Luke is their companion who is recording these events. So that's not always clear as we read through this passage who they and them is, Paul and Silas. If you want to read back in chapter 16, you can pick that up. We see in verse 2 that Paul went first to the synagogue of the Jews. It says that he went in as was his custom. We see that this is a pattern of Paul's ministry as he's going on these missionary journeys. But even though he finds the most resistance against his message comes from the synagogues uh, where, where he preaches, still he goes there first. And that is because God has continued to be faithful in his promise to the Jewish nation to send the gospel to them first through the person of Jesus Christ, but also first each time Paul approaches one of these new cities on his journeys. And the message that he brings to them is one that's difficult for them to bear. He says that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Hard for them to accept. Hard for even Jesus' disciples to accept. Hard for Jews to accept now. Jesus, on three different occasions, at least while he was alive, tried to get this very same message across to his disciples, and they just weren't picking it up. In Luke chapter 9, says, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Not only did they didn't understand it, but they were afraid to ask because they were afraid they might understand the answer if they, uh, if they um, went into it. In Luke 18, Jesus picks up the same thread. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So after Jesus died, after he rose again, he tries again to get this message across to them as he walks with them along the road. Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus worked hard to get this message of a suffering Messiah across to his disciples. He looked to the prophets uh, to communicate that. And Paul is doing the very same thing, probably looking at the very same passages that Jesus did as he reasoned with them from the scriptures. We see in verse 2. The idea here is that Jesus' suffering and his rising from the dead fulfills what the Old Testament prophecies said. These prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth were fulfilled in history, in time. And therefore, we can say, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. See, the Jews primarily didn't believe in Jesus because they couldn't fit suffering into their picture of the Messiah. They didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Many people heard uh, Paul's preaching and responded with joy, but the Jews were jealous. Why were they jealous? They were jealous because Paul was able to inspire through his preaching something that they had not been able to do. That Paul, in three weeks of sharing in the synagogue, had brought life to these people. It talks about the devout Gentiles here, the devout Greeks. So these would have been people who were curious about God, who were intrigued by the ethical system, who maybe were even making some effort to follow the law of Moses, but who hadn't taken that final step of commitment to join the Jewish faith by being circumcised. If they had taken that step, they would have been referred to here as proselytes and not as devout Greeks. So three weeks of preaching, and Paul has found commitment from these guys who are wholeheartedly committed then to Christ and his work, who hear the gospel that they can be saved not by their own works and following the law, but rather by the generous gift of God himself. And they are hooked. And so the Jews are jealous. And... They take some wicked men of the rabble, they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, being Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. Now, this is not just an approach of some kind of mob justice that's going on there. There's actually a legal structure here that we're not familiar with. If I've got a beef against my neighbor because his dog keeps on coming over and doing its business in my yard, there is no legal recourse for me to go and gather up the people of the community and come over and confront him and have a legal judgment made against him. In Thessalonica, there was. Remember that 
the birthplace of democracy was in the Greek and the Roman uh, systems. And so there was a structure there for the people of the community, not just the civil authorities, but the people themselves to come together and pass judgment in situations like this. And so the first path is the one that they decide to try first. They want to go and find Paul and Silas and bring these outsiders out to the crowd, to the people, for this legal judgment against them. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers instead. And instead of bringing them out to the crowd, they brought them to the city authorities, it says in verse 6. So they decided for whatever reason, they didn't like option one. Probably the crowd would have been a lot more understanding and lenient towards these locals than they would be to some foreigners who came in from outside preaching some weird message. So they go for path two. Go to the civil authorities. They changed their strategy when they couldn't find the outsiders. And it's interesting to see the accusation that they bring against, uh, against the Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Little bit of hypocrisy there, isn't there? Because it is this group of people who had just gathered up a mob, set the city in uproar, attacked the house of Jason, and dragged people out in front of the city authorities. Who's turned the world upside down? And nevertheless, that is the accusation that they bring. And they also say that the Christians are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's a little bit tricky to understand exactly what decree they're being accused of breaking. Uh, there were laws against um, predictions or discussions about a future ruler. The idea was that that's too close to an idea of rebellion to acknowledge that the current Caesar might die someday and be replaced. And so that's probably what's being referred to. But in any case, again, this message that is being preached has been distorted by these people. The Jews distorted the message of Jesus who came as the spiritual king and say that that is a political message of rebellion against Rome. In spite of the fact that Jesus multiple times throughout his ministry, when the crowd came out and sought to create in him a political leader to make him match their view of the Messiah, he stepped out of the way. He left. He deflected the conversation. Jesus was not interested in those things because he was here for something more important than political revolution. In verse 9, it says that they took money as security from Jason and the rest, and then they let them go. So the idea here was that Jason and the other Christians were supposed to ensure that Paul and Silas left town. That's what the security was for. And presumably, after that had happened, the money would then be returned to them. Whether that actually happened, we don't know. Luke didn't think that part of the story was important. So what is important from this? Well, we've come a long way from Paul and Barnas' first missionary experience on Cyprus, where they met with the favor and the support of the social elite and many of the rulers on the island. Things are starting to heat up a little bit now, aren't they? And have been for the last several uh, episodes as we're uh, reading through Acts. And so we need to consider this passage carefully because there is an example here that we are supposed to follow. That example comes from the life of Paul. It comes from 
the actions of the church in Thessalonica, and it comes from Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians that we have recorded uh, in two of his letters. Was the hostility against the gospel that we see initiated in this passage, was that a passing thing in Thessalonica, or did that continue? It continued, yeah, we know that because we have letters that Paul wrote to them several years later. We have two different letters. And uh, so I won't read all of First and Second Thessalonians now. I'm just going to give you the highlights that, that touch on our topic today. First chapter of the first letter. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Second chapter. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. A little bit later in that same second chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Chapter 3. He goes on, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. If that wasn't enough, Paul starts off his second letter. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So we can see that this aggression against the gospel that Paul initiated that didn't stop when he left town. Did they return the security deposit? I don't know. But we do know this didn't stop. This opposition didn't stop. We know that the gospel will meet resistance. And we know that that resistance will be directed against the messenger, even though it is God himself that people hate. It's a whole lot easier to come against me or against you than against the creator of the universe. So we must be certain it is for the gospel that we are being afflicted and not something from our own agenda or personality. Maybe they don't like me just because I'm a jerk. You know? That's not going to get any blessing from God. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Recorded in Luke, it says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when people persecute you for being a jerk? That's not what Jesus said. There's no blessing for being persecuted for our own sinful actions. In 2016, there were 49 people murdered at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And many people who claimed to be Christians condoned those murders because they said this was a place that was frequented primarily by homosexuals. You can imagine those who supported that message had some pushback against them. 
God does not bless us when we murder. He does not bless us when we condone murder. If we are persecuted for those types of things, we are on our own. Over the last 50 years, there have been eight murders, 17 attempted murders, 42 bombings, and 186 arsons targeted at abortion providers and clinics. In 2018, there were 15 assaults and hundreds of instances of intimidation and illegal trespassing at abortion clinics, many of them perpetrated by people who claimed to be doing the work of God. When we're persecuted for those types of things, or for condoning those types of things, there is no blessing from God. Because our God is not a God of hate and violence, but of healing and restoration. For every difficult situation that we might face, for every controversial issue, there is a constructive approach to that that brings honor to our Father in heaven. And there's a destructive approach that honors our enemy. So if you believe that practicing homosexuality is sinful, I believe you have properly interpreted God's word. But if you live out that belief by being rude or condescending or violent toward those who disagree with you, then you also are in your sin. And God's solution to both sin problems is the same. Repent and turn to Jesus. The proper way for Christians to fight against the sexual liberalism that we see rising all around the world is to invest heavily in our youth to teach them that they are made in the image of God. And that being a boy or being a girl, whichever one that God has made you, is a wonderful blessing. It's good. God made man and woman, and both are good. That's a message that's not taught with words to our young people. It's a message that is communicated when we truly value the youth that are among us. We show them we are valuable when we interact with them. We show them they're valuable when we give them our time. If you believe that abortion is sinful, I believe that you have correctly interpreted the word of God. But if you live out that belief by being violent or angry or hurtful towards those who disagree with you, towards abortion providers or towards women who have had an abortion or are considering it, then you also are trapped in sin. God's solution to both sin problems is the same. Repent and turn to Jesus. The proper way for Christians to fight against this trend is to do things like volunteer at CareNet or support them financially, to be a foster or an adoptive parent or to come alongside a foster or adoptive family and support them through the many challenges that you face. I'm proud to say that this church shines in this area. When Kirsty and I first uh, moved to this church, I think more than half of the families in the church had either been adoptive or uh, foster families or had been sometime in the past. Incredible. Kirsty and I were talking last week with some friends and all of us there had perceived a, a rising sense of anxiety or despair or hopelessness, especially over the last three weeks. How many of you have picked up on this around us? Yep. Yeah. 
sharp change very recently. Certainly there's lots to worry about. Taliban in Afghanistan, again, earthquakes in Haiti, again, coronavirus pretty much everywhere, again, or still, depending on how you look at it. Severe drought in the western United States and terrible dryland crop yields around here. Smoke and wildfire in the Okanagan, again. Certainly these things are concerning and it's hard to talk about social upheaval and natural disasters in a joyful tone, isn't it? But the tone of voice that journalists are using and that people are using to discuss these things is very different than what we saw a month ago. There's been a change. More dire, more frustrated, more hopeless than what we saw a little bit ago. And so I would encourage you, if your own mood has been trending towards depression or anger or hopelessness over the last three weeks, think about why that might be. Is it really because of something in your life, or is it something that the tone of the world around you is influencing you? We need to understand that our emotions are influenced by what we consume. Facebook knows this well. They do it on purpose. They pitch the stuff to you and see if they can mess you around. And so it might be time to spend less time in the news, less time in social media, and more time playing with your kids or with your dog, more time taking walks, more time especially reading the word of God, praying to him, worshiping him, hearing his voice. So we need to pay attention to what we're bringing in, and we need to pay attention to what's coming out of our own mouths. There's a song called Stand Up uh, by the band The Flowbots. I'm certain you have never heard it on a Christian radio station. Some intriguing lyrics in there, though. The, the refrain that they say more than once is, if you've got more to give than you've got to prove, then put your hands up and I'll copy you. If you've got more to give than you've got to prove, put your hands up and I'll copy you. Many people spend their life trying to communicate to the world that they are a certain type of person. It's about proving who you are. It's about peer pressure in a very large sense, and adults deal with this just as much as teenagers do, trying to show ourselves so we look like what we think we should be. Many people go through life as if they're in an argument and that they are compelled to prove the point to the other guy. Many Christians spend far too much time in this as well, and by and large, I would say in this area, I can't tell the difference between most Christians and those who are not. Spend far too much time caught up in an argument trying to beat the other guy down. We are not in an argument. We're in a war. And in this war, we are not called to beat the other guy down. We are commanded, we are sent by the creator of the universe to rescue the other guy from Satan, who would love nothing more than to spend the rest of eternity with his claws suck, sunk into their flesh. And so we need to pay attention to what comes out of our mouth. 
you participate in social media, I encourage you to think very hard before you post. By the way, I'm not on social media. This isn't directed to anybody in particular. Somebody has posted something weird. I didn't see it. This is God's message to the church. We need to think hard when we speak. Is this about something that I'm trying to give to that person? Or is this about me trying to prove something about myself? If the things that we say, and more importantly, the way that we say them, is indistinguishable from what those who don't have faith would say, there is a serious problem. And we've gotten sidetracked. And so I think it's important to look at what does Paul tell the Thessalonians in the midst of all of this suffering that we've talked about, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this affliction, what did he tell them to do? Love one another. Encourage one another. You see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, if you study uh, end time stuff, I'm sure you've been over and over this chapter. It starts out now concerning the times and the seasons. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound maybe kind of relevant? Whether that passage refers only to the Thessalonians and the afflictions that they faced, or whether it refers to an end times tribulation that the church will experience before Jesus' second coming, Paul's instructions are telling. He says in chapter 5, Therefore, all of this stuff, times and seasons, therefore, all of this, Encourage one another and build one another up. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. He's speaking directly about times like ours. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, Stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. So Paul is saying, we were there with you in person. We gave you a bunch of instruction then. We followed it up with these letters that we sent you, First and Second Thessalonians. Hold firm to that. That's what we're supposed to do in times of adversity. And what were the things that the apostles taught? Was it political revolution? No. More important. That's easy. It was spiritual reformation. We've got to keep the main things first. And so I want to come back to the illustration of the mountain town and the volcano. Has the church in the United States been faithful to the mission that Jesus gave to us at his ascension? Or have we gotten distracted by the pursuit of our own safety and our own comfort in the field? Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote before he was executed for his faith. And in the last chapter of this last letter, Paul says this. It's going to sound familiar. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a wonderful acceptance that Paul had of what was coming. Because he knew he had spent his life working on the right things. But those of us who have a bit of a temper might be thinking here, Paul, you fought? When did you ever fight? 
Since the moment Jesus met you on the road, you have been the most nauseatingly passive person I have ever heard of. Every time the bad guys got loud, you headed out the back door. There was even a time you were lowered in a basket from the window so you could get away. When did you ever fight, Paul? We miss three words in there. The good fight. Not the fight that Paul in his humanity wanted to fight. It was the fight that his Lord commanded him to fight. And it was fought with the gospel and not with the ways that he used to use. We know what Paul did before he was saved. We know the way that he approached problems. We know what he did with people who disagreed with him. He dragged them off to prison. He had them stoned. He watched them be stoned. Do you know how difficult it is for a firebrand like Paul to set aside his approach to problem solving and to pick up instead God's approach to problem solving? He jumped on board with God's way of solving problems and he kept the first things first. And those first things came from Jesus himself. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, all authority has been given to me. There is no higher authority. There's no other mission that can take the place here. All authority has been given to me. I don't know of any other time in Jesus' ministry that he emphasizes that to that degree, that he is God, and these are his instructions. This verse is often used to emphasize global missions, but Jesus said all nations, and all nations definitely includes ours. We are one of them. We are a nation. It includes us. And so I want to bring this down to a practical level because we've all heard these words, but what does this look like tangibly? What am I supposed to do now, today? Write this down. This is homework. And this is the most important thing that I will tell you today. If you are a Christian, you have, outside of your immediate family, at least one or two people who are not yet Christians, whom God has placed in your life specifically for you to encourage them, for you to guide them, for you to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. And yes, we live that with our actions. And yes, you have to use words too. One to two people who are not yet Christians, it's your responsibility you're part of the mission that God has given you. You have one to two Christians whom God has uniquely put in your life for you to actively mentor and disciple them. And don't get worried. It is very possible that God has put you into their life for them to mentor you right back. So don't approach those relationships like you have to have all of the answers to every question. You'll probably screw it up if you come with that attitude. One to two Christians that it is your job to mentor and disciple. 
And there's somewhere around half a dozen Christians with whom you have been called to a ministry that is somewhat less intense, but no less important. And that is a ministry of encouragement and fellowship, that you can build them up and encourage them and feed them so that they can focus on their two to four people that God has given them. You're with me? One to two non-Christians in your life. One to two Christians that you should be mentoring or discipling. And about half a dozen people that it is your responsibility to fellowship with and encourage and build up. Do you know who your people are? If you don't, you need to spend some time with the Spirit of God and ask Him to show you who they are. And if you sit down and you pray and you can't think of anything, anybody, if you can't fill out this list, come join the ESL ministry. Or go and volunteer at a Christian organization. Or go and hang out in downtown Olmec about 7 o'clock at night. Because God will put those people into your life. If you can't find them, you're not out there, and you need to be. And then we need to give those relationships the time that they need. If you don't, you're not fighting the good fight. We live each day before the face of God. And we must make Jesus' great commission the primary purpose for our each and every day. Don't get out of bed until you have planned your tactics for the day. Please pray with me. Lord God, we confess that the church has not been as faithful as we should be in these things. The numbers speak a hard truth. 40% of the world's population has not heard the gospel. 40% of the people groups in the world have no chance of hearing the gospel. And far more than 40% of the people in this country think they know what you're about, but have the wrong idea because of the way that we act. So God, I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would fill us with your love, with your blessing. I pray that you would keep us focused on the work that you have for us. We would be obedient and faithful to this word that cuts us to the bone because it shows us how far short of your glory we fall. May we glorify you by the way we spend each and every moment of our days.